0: I'm never really quite sure what to say here. I mean, it's a good evening for you and I, but generally I watch the podcast in the morning, so it's generally it should be probably good morning to me. I uh
1: Good morning. I, oh, good good morning, Keith.
0: That'll make me feel good tomorrow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Welcome back to the third episode of Analog Bias. Keith and I uh I think I think we've got a pretty good episode tonight. Tonight. Even though it's morning when you're listening to this, morning for, morning for future Keith. Yeah. <laughs>
0: well, we had we, we we had a little movie night. You know, we cuddled up on the couch, got some popcorn, Junior Mints, because that's that's what I eat during movies. Jeff, what's your what's your movie?
1: Movie. Uh, I th- Andy what? when I was young, it was Sour Patch Kids, but your it's mouth good. hurts so much after a few of those that I've as as I've matured, it's Swedish Fish.
0: I like Swedish fish. My my big problem was that I I went into junior mens because I had a traumatic experience with milk duds. Uh, I when when I was a kid, I got milk duds because I thought they were the greatest candy in the world. I mean, who doesn't like caramel and chocolate? Right. Seems seems like a a magical mixture. I chomped down on one in the middle of a movie theater. I don't even remember what the movie was. It was probably something stupid, you know. uh, And I tried to chew it, and I literally ripped out a tooth out of my head. In oh. a milk dud. I'm not joking. It was, <laughs>
1: wait, this was a tooth you were about to lose? Yeah, yeah, it was a loose okay. tooth. Okay, all right.
0: No, 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 yeah. I, don't, I, my, my, I don't I don't have rotting teeth.
1: Right. I just, all those I milk did. duds.
0: <laughs> this is a loose tooth when I was a very little kid, and I chomped down, tried to unbite, and tooth popped out, blood everywhere. I had to miss the movie. What movie? Uh, do you want me to make something up? Because I really don't remember what it was. <laughs> no, no, I need to make it up. I mean, you weren't
1: there for it anyway, so I yeah, guess would why work. would you remember it?
0: The milk dud was seared into my memory. The movie, however, wasn't. But now, now junior we've, yeah. Junior Mints, we've uh, grown.
1: Okay. All right. You're, well, you're, uh, you're,
0: you're on to Swedish Fish. I'm on to Junior Mints and
1: bigger and better things. Big, bigger and better. <laughs> we can remember the movie we watched this time, too. So
0: <laughs>
1: just barely, yeah. just barely. <laughs> so we uh, we were both pretty excited to check out the the documentary Dave Grohl put together on Sound City. So uh, we both queued it up and and watched it over the weekend, and uh, and prepared ourselves for a, a lively debate, which actually just turns into a total
0: agreeing bitch fest.
1: It does, and we'll we'll try not to rant too much.
0: <laughs> but first of all, Jeff, what are you drinking tonight? Because I think that you promised me that you'd be done with your Jim Beam by now.
1: No, I, I promised you that this was the last episode for which I would be drinking the Jim Beam, and yeah. I'm still drinking it. I, 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 I ri- believe I re- that it, it will be the last episode. I guess we'll find out next time.
0: I I ridicule you. I ridicule you,
1: Jeff. No, man, it, it's okay. Shame. The thing I'm, well, first, I'm glad to be finishing a bottle because I love finishing things and then I can open something new. The downside is I have, I have a, a, uh, I think a bottle of Jack Daniels queued up next and I can't, like, it's been around for a while. I don't think it's getting better with age at this point. (laughs) So I have uh, an internal obligation to consume that before I get adventurous and try anything new or good
0: meanwhile i switch drinks every single show i mean we, we, we originally started this thinking that we're going to just drink whiskey and i'm on to uh, a very refreshing vodka soda because i have a new liquor supplier who just gives me vodka for free apparently so i i can't complain about that but so i i was campari last week now i'm on to vodka soda this week and uh i'm ahead of you jeff so cloud me or vodka I wish it was Cloud. <laughs> uh Anyhow, though, so Jeff and I were very excited to watch the Dave Grohl documentary on many different levels. One, we're both huge fans of the Foo Fighters, of Nirvana, of Dave Grohl in general. I think that he's probably one of the better songwriters in the past 15 years and definitely top three rock drummers
1: likely of all time,
0: in my opinion.
1: Oh, man. I don't dare go near that statement, but I would say that I really like his drumming oh I'm gonna go near that statement all right i uh I'm gonna let you field all the hate mail
0: I will I will dear okay. idiot um <laughs> the only uh you know and, and then honestly, it's like reading this basic synopsis of it. it seemed right up our alley that it was basically seemingly a love letter to. Analog recording. And if you know what the title of this podcast is, it's Analog Bias. Jeff Pre- and I. Presumably, look, you know the title if you're listening to it. Yeah, yeah. you know, I, I've, I've listened to some random things in my day. <laughs> but, you know, we love us some analog instruments, analog machines, analog
1: everything. Absolutely. So, and I think um, to be clear, we like those things not to the exclusion of any other tools but it just uh is something we both have an affinity for and we like we like the tool set for for some reasons maybe we'll we'll jump into later um but let's let's just start with the actual the movie did you catch like there was a uh, a very clear division like i i thought it was like two parts like a first half and a second half where mm-hmm. in, the, in the first half was I want to say it was basically a behind the music <laughs> about Sound City and the history of the room. I'm, I miss behind the music. That was
0: probably, when I was growing up, the greatest 45 minutes ever, when they would just kind of divulge these lurid details of backstage life. Yeah. Lurid- as an eight-year-old, eight or however old we were, I thought it was great
1: yeah lurid details and awful bus accidents touring wow yeah that that metallica one was 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 pretty it was pretty,
0: was pretty grim
1: yeah actually but, with all the time growl spent uh in that van in sound city i was really <laughs> worried we were going to get another like bus touring accident story but. oh
0: man we we thought the same exact thing when we were watching it it got to the end of the movie probably the last 20 minutes and we just turned to each other, we're like, why why has he been in this van literally the entire and, uh,
1: <laughs> sorry.
0: Dave Grohl did his entire interview in Sound City, if you haven't seen it, inside of this pristine weird van. No for no for no apparent reason.
1: Right. It was, I mean, the movie opens with him on this discussion of uh of Nirvana and you know them coming off of these totally questionable sketchy tours with sketchy, sketchy bands and sketchy billing and they've got their record deal and they're going to sound city to make the record and they're in this van and he he takes the, the story. So literally like the entire interview is done in a van and there is a lot of footage of a van driving around. Dave Grohl likes his vans. He likes analog recording in vans. There was more than one van, I think, too, right? Yeah. There was a the VW van, and there was also like the uh, Chevy Astro style van. There were a couple of vans.
0: We've learned some things about Dave Grohl in this documentary, yeah. vans and analog recording. But I did notice that, getting back to the point, that there was that really clear division that you had in the probably, we'll say, first you know, forty-five minutes of this movie, this really wonderful history of a studio that. I didn't know meant so much to honestly most a lot of the rock and roll that I love. I I had no idea what Sound City actually meant to artists as varying as Rage Against the Machine, to Neil Young, to you know Nirvana, to Rick Springfield, to Fleetwood Mac. I had no idea.
1: Yeah, I had always I, I was familiar with a good chunk of the catalog that they went through, but certainly not everything. And at the same time, I think in my head, not ever really having seen pictures or, or heard much about sound city other than the records that came out of there. I had envisioned it as um, one of those amazing studios. Rick Rubin was talking about with the hot tubs and like just (laughs) beautiful, but, but it, it was just a place that you went into and you I totally worked, and then you left and you took a shower. I totally forgot Rick Rubin was in
0: that. Rick Rubin makes everything better that he's in. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care what he does, and I don't care what you have to say about him. Yes, Californication was one of the most over compressed records of all time, one of my favorites, but he still made it better.
1: Yeah, and I actually don't know if Rick Rubin is the person you blame for the compression there, or if I don't blame Rick Rubin for anything. <laughs>
0: Except maybe Saint Anger. That was a pretty bad record.
1: Was did he do that one? Oh yeah. wow, Ooh, that's a black mark.
0: Yeah, yeah. Saint Anger was not a good. Was not a good record. But I, st- yeah. I, st- I still st- I blame Lars for that. The, uh, the yeah,
1: <laughs> Lars <laughs> was in this also. Um, he
0: was. Everybody, everybody was in in this first half. That everybody was in was awesome. Honestly, hearing all of the stories, funny sentimental sad inspiring it was you know and honestly it was kind of cool that it one of the cool parts was you know speaking of the behind the music thing it wasn't really lurid details and crazy thing it was just music people went there to record really good music and they talked about how wonderful the studio sounded and the fact that you went there because you knew you'd get a killer drum sound
1: (laughs) right and It was also the way it was set up, the technology that they had in there really forced you into, it wasn't, you know, it didn't completely force you, but it encouraged a situation where you had talented musicians playing together in a room live. And uh, I think that, that that's something Grohl closely identified with, but didn't articulate particularly well no
0: i mean well i think the person who articulated that really well even in a uh a roundabout way was brad wilk the drummer from raging against the machine when he was talking about how they recorded their self-titled their first record there which again, massively influential to me and to jeff and mm-hmm. probably millions of people around the world you know he said that when they recorded that they literally just invited their friends in and they recorded it like it was a live show and that's and that was one of the reasons why that record sounds the way it sounds you know it's because yeah. you get you get this energy you in a in a studio in sound city you got the energy of all of musicians being in this room knowing that you have to play well knowing that you have to play perfect and knowing that the limitations of everything that's there between the fact that you're recording to tape that between the fact that you're recording to an analog board you can't go into pro tools and just cut paste tone shift whatever right you know you know that you
1: have to really achieve
0: and there's a different level of passion and desperation even that comes with that
1: yeah well tom petty was in in that first half Tom Petty's band was talking about playing, I can't even remember which song they were talking about, but
0: they're talking about
1: recording, uh, damn the torpedoes, the album, the album. Right. But they were saying there was one song they thought they played 140, 150 times trying to get it right. And (laughs) I mean, that's a, that's something that I, I guess, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of people I work with don't have the budget or the time. Maybe it's, even the talent although i've got to believe that if they tackled something 140 150 times they could they could get a killer take out of it um, but there's a like a disconnect well there're a couple of disconnects here there's a literal disconnect between the first and second half of the film <laughs> sound city um but there was also a bit of a disconnect in my mind between how Grohl felt about the experience of working in Sound City and the, the place he focused his attention or um, it's almost like he transferred the experience of having worked in Sound City onto the console that was in the room. And, and that kind of takes us into the second half of the film. I agree with you that I think that he did transfer
0: it a little bit you know the fact that Sound City became the console console for him, but I also believe that that was all he could take from there,
1: yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, he couldn't take the room to his place, although he probably has plenty of money to probably have could have just bought the building and kept it all intact. but it sounds like the building wasn't all that nice anyway. It was a magical room and a magical console, I think it was more of a magical time as
0: probably what they were saying about Sound City, is that the console is magical, the room is magical, but it was just more the time spent there that really meant them meant something to them. But what? so Dave Grohl seems to transfer all of this magic onto this one board, which kind of does bring us into the next part of this discussion and the next part of this movie.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the second half of the movie is about him. Well, spoiler, right? Sound City is shut down. Sound City is no more. So as they shut down the room, Grohl made arrangements to buy the console out of there. And as you were saying, that was the one thing that he could take from the experience and have. So the console is a Neve. I want to say it was an 8068, but I'm probably not not, uh, quoting that correctly. That was actually probably
0: one of my favorite parts of the movie, though, when they had Rupert Neve in there. And... He was explaining this really thick English accent exactly how it worked, and basically they had these subtitles saying everything that I was thinking. <laughs> uh, I mean, given, I'm sure you, Jeff, understood exactly what Rupert Neve was saying.
1: <laughs> I understood but, what he was saying, and I did not think what he gave was at all a thorough or good technical description <laughs> of what was going on. Of course you didn't. Of course. Well. Yeah.
0: He's a 90-year-old Englishman. He doesn't know what he's talking about anymore. It still sounded impressive for an idiot like me.
1: Come on, cut cut us a break. Well, so that's, I think, not that you're at all an idiot, but I think part of what bothered me about the second half of the movie, there were a bunch of things that bothered me about it, but one was they tried to sort of, I think Grohl knew that they had to explain a little bit about the technology to, to convey to people why this console mattered at all, and this console does matter. I I don't want to seem dismissive of. I mean, this board. How many Neve full Neve boards are still like in existence, really? Um, man, I don't I don't know the number at all, but I would I would venture to say more than people want. If that makes any sense, it there, does not. Yeah. So I mean, Neve boards sound great. Um, but over the last 15, 15, 20 years, as, as things have gotten more and more digital, people have had less use for a full console and they've been sort of, lots of them have been decommissioned and sold for parts. You know, you can go buy, uh, a, a set of Neve preamps and run them into your digital system and get the character, the color, the tone of the, of the Neve board, Without having to invest in the massive console, the massive installation costs, the massive overhead just to keep the thing running, the maintenance and upkeep is brutal. The electricity of just having that thing on is intense.
0: The electricity alone, yeah, probably is like
1: a hundred times what my monthly electric bill is at my at my apartment. So one of the studios I worked in while we were in college. Uh, had a big AMEC console and that was a company that, that Rupert Neve founded after. And I, I don't know the whole history with Neve, but he worked for a number of companies. Um, and I think as one went out of business, he would start something new. And, uh, so he had done these AMEC consoles and they had one of these big boards in there. And, uh, the thing put out so much heat that they had never had to install heating in the studio. And they finally sold the board because they just weren't using it. They had a Pro Tools control interface sitting on top of the thing that they found more useful. They sold the board, and they had to then go get heat installed because it was cold in the studio <laughs> all of a sudden. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, these things are are expensive, and I'm we're off on a tangent here, but I, I would venture to say that the number of people doing this work who can afford all of the overhead of buying, installing, and maintaining one of these consoles is is shrinking. So there's probably a lot less demand for them than there was at, at the peak, certainly. Right. So anyhow,
0: though, you get these Neve boards yep. that, are incredible and they really are. They they do sound better than any other. I mean, it's you know we we've we've worked together with APIs. We've worked, you mm-hmm. know, it's like on on really wonderful boards. But for some reason, the Neve boards do have a character that you just can't replicate anywhere. It's they, yeah.
1: I totally agree. They have a very special tone and a special color, and I understand why Grohl, I want to say like fetishized the board. But I think it's a transference. I, I think the board, the color, the tone you get from that is just a small piece of the experience that he was trying to capture.
0: Right. I agree with you. I think that he, it was a nostalgia thing for him. That it was, a, the main, you know, shit. If I had the kind of money that Dave Grohl has and I had the opportunity to buy a Neve board and could put it in a, an amazing basement studio, yeah, I mean, I you would do the same thing, wouldn't you?
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, Yeah, absolutely.
0: In a heartbeat. I mean, it's like if I could have people move that in for me, hook it up, have Butch Vig come sit behind the board and record my—I, you know, just have Butch Vig come in and record me playing acoustic guitar. Yeah, shoot, I would do that all day long. Yeah, every year I would—I would do that. But
1: (laughs) maybe a couple times a year.
0: Maybe a couple times a year. But you know, end of the day, it's like it was a nostalgia thing for him. It—it seemed like it seemed like a nostalgia thing.
1: Yeah, but so so, all right. So the second half of the movie, he buys this board out of the closing Sound City Studio. He has it installed at his is it six oh six or six oh one studios? I think it's six oh one actually. Yeah, I don't know why I want to say six oh six, but Grohl has this installed in his studio, and then he has a bunch of people into his studio who (sighs) had previously recorded.
0: Yeah. But by, by a bunch of people, you mean like, oh, I don't know, like on the lesser lesser end, Rick Springfield, who Jesse's yep. Girl's a Wonderful Song. On the greater end,
1: Paul McCartney. So McCartney is a weird exception to... Because he didn't record on that board. He had nothing to do with Sound City ever before. Everybody else they had in. Stevie Nicks. Um, I'm blanking right. on the guy. Lee, Lee Ving from Fear.
0: Oh, uh, from Fear. Oh, that, that was probably actually... That was one of my favorite parts of the second half of that movie,
1: leaving from fear. Totally.
0: Sin- that was incredible. I mean but, That that was actually – the fact that that guy can actually still sing like that. Yeah. Actually, I take that back. The fact that that guy is actually still alive mm-hmm. is insane to me.
1: Yeah, that I, I'll give you that for sure. But
0: Fun fact. Did you know that Fear was the first band that Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers was ever in? I did not know that.
1: Yep, yeah, He played with a pick, and he played all downstrokes. Yes. Yeah. I do believe that. No, no, no <laughs> question. But, so Grohl has all these people in. And not together. It's like he had them in one at a time. And it's like Stevie Nicks and the Foo Fighters. And it's <laughs> leaving and the Foo Fighters. And it was a very strange set of recording sessions they filmed. And maybe to somebody outside of the world of the stuff, it maybe it can help to convey like why this is exciting and fun, but to somebody who n- maybe knows a little bit about this, it just turned me off. It it was like watching people sit down and try to jam and the jams weren't that awesome. Um, it was really I, weird.
0: I agree with you to a point, you know? And I mean, I think that it was weird. Um, And I think that there, like, I, I don't like Stevie Nicks. I, I mean, I respect what Fleetwood Mac did. I respect all that kind of stuff. But, you know, seeing that one, that was really annoying to me. You know, yeah. those lyrics were terrible. They, were, know, I think they were really she, bad. She was t- talking about not inviting the devil to a party because he can't party with them. I mean, I come think on.
1: I, I think she's written that song a few times before.
0: Uh, I'm going to tell you that she's probably written that about two dozen times before. <laughs> yeah. But it was, I mean, that was bad. But it's like that. But then you did see. Th- Like, honestly, as much as it was hyped up, you know, the song that McCartney did with Nirvana, you know, if you will, and massive air quotes, you know, that was cool. I mean, it's not a song that's going to go down in, 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 you know, the tables of time, but, you know, to see these expert musicians and, you know, Sure, Chris Novoselic and Pat Smear aren't, you know, experts in the same way that Dave Grohl and, and Paul McCartney are in the sense of technical ability, but I mean they're all legends in their own right. They, oh, yeah. They've all they've they're all killer.
1: done. They're killer performers. They're great. So, right. Yeah. I mean,
0: be, be, between them, they have you know <laughs> the Beatles, and Nirvana, the Foo Fighters, and the Germs. I mm. mean, which all of those acts, I mean all of those acts are massively influential, not just in their scene, but they're just massively influential. And and I think that seeing artists like that sit down was cool, but it did feel like kind of a vanity project.
1: It was really, really weird. The thing, the fact that Grohl asked McCartney into this thing, and he had nothing to do with Sound City, which was ostensibly the whole, like, underlying narrative of this documentary. And I read a couple of interviews with Grohl about this, and he was was connecting, oh, Sound City and this Neve console are the reason that I became the musician I became. But Paul McCartney and the Beatles were what inspired me to get into this in the first place, so it made sense to bring it together only makes sense to bring those things together if the subject of the movie is Dave Grohl. (laughs) It doesn't make sense if the subject of the movie is Sound City. And I think this is like the split for me between the first and second half. Like the first half is a documentary about Sound City and the second half is a documentary about Dave Grohl worshiping at the feet of Rupert Neve and making a Vanity Project record that's pretty weird. Well I think that what the
0: second half of the movie kind of brought into kind of a stark realization to me was the fact that not only was it a you know kind of a vanity film a vanity record for Dave Grohl but it kind of got into this idea of how Dave Grohl really viewed analog versus digital recording or not even recording but just analog versus digital instruments, whether it's the recording the, the the you know, the Neve console or an acoustic guitar versus a computer. And it really brought into this kind of weird idea that he kind of has it, he kind of looks down upon digital anything unless Trent Reznor <laughs> is behind it.
1: Yeah. That's something I mean this is something I, I definitely wanted to talk about. The whole way that Analog technology was presented as superior to digital overlooks in in my mind overlooks a huge part of the discussion. Um, but there were some really weird scenes in the movie with like Neil Young talking about that mistake in the algorithm when they figured out digital recording. I
0: don't think Neil Young knows what the word algorithm means.
1: I don't know if he knows what any of the words and like I. <laughs> Nah, I don't want to bash Neil Young. I I love his music. I love him as an artist and a performer. But
0: sure, but is he at a whiteboard
1: doing whatever? Yeah, no. I can't see him deriving like the Nyquist <laughs> theorem. Um, <laughs> that's that's the theorem I was looking for, the
0: Nyquist theorem. Yeah, mainly because <sighs> I don't know what that means. So I'm guaranteeing you, Neil Young does not know what the Nyquist theorem is.
1: We'll save Nyquist for another discussion. But but that was so strange and. That comment from Neil Young, and maybe I should—I'll I'll grant him that maybe some early piece of hardware he was using that was digital had a bug in its implementation of something fundamental. But we understand the theory behind digital pretty well, and we know how to do it well. Are you sure you do? I—I I feel like I can talk about it pretty comfortably. Yeah.
0: <laughs> let's let's not go into that.
1: we'll we'll be here for two hours yeah at least but um between that and then neil young's other uh, did you ever catch him on leno talking about pono his new like superior analog i don't know if it's a format or a service i can't find any details on this pono pono i it's the hawaiian word it sounds vaguely dirty yeah, I don't think it's supposed to be I think it's the Hawaiian word for righteous. I think that's what it was. Awesome. Well, I mean that's that sounds like something that Neil Young would come up with. <laughs> yeah, it's a I mean, that's cool. I'm I'm cool with the word. I just like he's talking about this like they've fixed digital recording or digital audio formats so that now they're better. And he's not providing any information about what they've done or what this thing is. And I think it's already been delayed a few times. I guess what I'm driving at is Neil Young has lost all technical credibility with me.
0: <laughs> Did Neil Young ever have technical credibility with you?
1: I never considered it, but he doesn't now. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: So I mean that that comment was weird, but that like the fact that that comment, which was completely unsupported. This mistake in the algorithm. No support. No justification. No explanation. The fact that that made the film sets the tone. I think that Grohl wanted to present about digital technology as opposed to analog.
0: Right. That that I mean, and, and I, do, I You know, all right. I love analog everything. Mm-hmm. I do. I mean, behind me right now is a Rhodes. You know, I have all acoustic instruments, you know, I, I love analog, everything. If I could record everything, if I could learn how to splice tape and, you know, if I had the money to do that, I would do that every day of my life. Mm -hmm. I would absolutely. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. And I love it. I love the way it sounds. I love the limitations it presents to you. I love the fact, I think that one of the lines in it was that it demands that you make choices
1: yeah, that was actually, I made a note about that. That was, James Brown was talking about the creative restrictions. Who's James Brown again? I don't mean the, but who's James Brown in the
0: context of this movie?
1: And he was one of the uh, the producer engineers that was working on the record at the end. Right. With gotcha. Um But yeah. yeah, he made the comment about creative restrictions and specifically he said something about, you know, with Pro Tools you can keep coming back to it. And I completely completely relate to those comments. I think there's something about the limitations of a 24 track tape deck or a 16 or an 8 track tape deck that forces you to make some decisions and just make the music. And you better play it well. You can do a little bit of editing. You can do you can do a little bit of processing to it, but it just forces you to be good at your instruments, to know your stuff and to go well, do it right
0: and it's not just from the musician's point
1: of view it, it forces the
0: engineers and the producers to be very good it forces everybody to be significantly better at their jobs mm-hmm. than you necessarily have to. i mean i don't think will i am who is one of the most detestable people in modern music yeah he can, he can come on here and try to defend himself and i will battle him <laughs> tooth and nail i don't think i'd be able to battle myself against dave grohl or yeah any any of these people right now but but it's like I don't think somebody like Will I Am walks in the studio and like thinks about the limitations or thinks about any problem he might have or thinks about having to be the best that he can be because he knows that at the end of the day he can just walk out and edit the shit out of whatever he recorded. Yeah, and that goes the same for countless other producers and musicians. I mean, it's just it that part of it is sad that you do. When Dave Grohl accepted the Grammy for you know Walk in two thousand and twelve, I think off of Wasting Light, and you know he, his speech said something along the lines of that. You know, it's like you know something. You know, go learn an instrument. This proves real music isn't dead. You know, it's like it has to come from your heart. And it's like you know that that is true. It's like it's not even just about instruments. it's Like you have to learn your craft really well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like and that's the way you make really good art. And that's what the way you make something that'll last forever. I mean, if you think in 100 years, you know, Britney Spears is going to be remembered as, you know, an innovator.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's probably not true. So the, uh, the comments about the creative restrictions there, I think what you're getting at about, you know, what you can do in terms of editing are very true. My personal experience is that sometimes the open-endedness of a project that I can open in Pro Tools, you know, the fact that I can throw... 10 10 point i could throw like 100 points of eq on a track no problem in pro tools right as opposed to if i ran it through a console or a real piece of gear or even a simulated piece of gear in pro tools i am limited i have a couple bands of eq and i can go nuts with them but the the actual frequencies i can select are limited the gain steps might be limited it just all of those limitations sort of force you to just, just kind of get it there, and instead of obsessing forever about oh should I put that at three hundred hertz or at like three hundred and five hertz or at like three hundred and ten, it's yeah hey, it's three hundred or it's four hundred and uh, it's three hundred and let's move on. Let's move on to the next thing and get the song right. And yeah, but see that that's the best part about it. It's not only does it kind of relieve a
0: little bit of that neurosis, but it focuses back on the actual art it focuses on the fact that you're trying to get a song right here you're not trying to get you know these really minuscule things that probably most people aren't going to be able to 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 really differentiate but they'll be able to hear if you get the right fucking drum take
1: absolutely that's um yeah i mean if you go back to like the fleetwood mac rumor stuff those drums sound I, I don't know that I've ever heard drum sound as good as that. And that was done on a very limited set of tools because I took the time to get it right. And yeah, I, I think the creative, I mean, maybe to wrap it up, like the creative limitations of, of analog, I think for certain types of music can be critical and can really contribute to something. But to this, uh this like broad dismissal of digital that, the tone of the second half of this film, even the first half of the film took, it was very off-putting because it's not, it's a tool. It's just a tool and you can give yourself the same limitations if you choose to, but it takes discipline.
0: It does. And I agree with you. I mean, I think that it's, it's difficult because like I said, I, I have an adoration for analog everything as, as you do to a degree as well. I mean, you, you're, you're more balanced with it, but I mean, if I if I could use analog everything every day of my life I would, but you know I can't. I don't have that sort of money. It's like I don't have that sort of those sort of connections. I don't go to Dave Grohl's house and swim in his pool, eat his hot dogs, and you know
1: record in his basement studio, or, or write your bass lines on his tennis court.
0: Right, as Nate Mendel will get to that. <laughs> yeah, but but I. I, I do take an amount of – there's an amount of resentment there that it's like somebody like Dave Grohl, who's a high high school dropout, who, you know, lived on floors in Laurel Canyon, that you kind of feel like maybe he forgot the fact that, you know, he wasn't once a millionaire, you know, and, and yeah. he – and there there are kids out there who don't have that kind of money. It's because like, the – cost of recording in an analog studio now has just skyrocketed even more because they're not there it's like it's just not there and you you really you really have to you know kind of think about the the music that 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 you love and the music that has come out that it's been really good that has been
1: recorded in somebody's basement so i think you know maybe the way the right way to think about this 20 years ago when you were getting started, the thing to do was have the test cam port a studio 4 track and do it in your bedroom. And, and for anybody jumping into this today, that's, that's old. It's garage band on your laptop and it enables like, that is the tool. If grow work is a day, that's what he would be doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to be so dismissive of a whole tool set in the one like token gesture they, they gave towards digital technology was, that uh, weird segment with Trent Reznor, which I think was meant to be like a... a- uh, olive branch to the digital
0: era. But you know, I mean, it's fucking Trent Reznor. I yeah, mean, the, yeah. the dude's a genius, and it's like, that's not digital. That's not, you know, the Cloud Nothings recording in a basement in, in Columbus, Ohio. It's not like me when I was 13 years old trying to figure out how to, like, cut wire in my parents' basement. This is like, you know, Trent Reznor has... Everything you could ever want, yeah, yeah, well, and he sounds great, and he's a genius, and yeah. I love all these people, but totally. <laughs>
1: totally he's not the only one using it right and and he is a great example of somebody using digital technology to a really positive effect and and taking advantage of the the aspects of digital that are unique that you can't have in the analog yeah. domain, but this still dismisses this whole broad class of of use of digital yeah. technology, I think that it's like. You know, it does
0: dismiss the broad class of digital technology, as you said. And I think that it just dismisses everybody who uses it. And he doesn't even, the idea of it doesn't even take into account the fact that these people don't have, by these people I'm included, I'm lumped into this, don't have the means or the connections to, you know, get. The analog. I mean, that, you know, if, you know, by bringing Trent Reznor, and Trent Reznor isn't using Pro Tools, and I mean, I'm sure he does in his life, but, you know, he's using digital technology in the sense of making instruments out of it. You know, Dave Grohl completely has dismissed the idea that Pro Tools or digital recording, you know, is has any sort of merit. You know, whereas it's like, it's it's a means to getting good music out there that otherwise wouldn't have gotten out there. You know, I use the cloud. Nothing's just because that was a record that I liked this year. But yeah. attack on attack on memory, it's like it was a great record recorded on Pro Tools in a basement in Columbus, Ohio. If that same record had been recorded, if that if that guy, sorry, I don't know his name, had the money or the backing to record that on tape, I'm sure it would have sounded better. I'm sure it would have
1: because. I, I, I don't know. I I think it would have sounded different. It would would have have sounded different different record.
0: I think it would have sounded better because I think everything does sound better on tape. But I think (laughs) that the, I do agree with that. I think everything does sound better on tape. But I think that the merit of digital is the fact that he can get it out there.
1: Yeah.
0: That it, the the ability to actually do that. He wouldn't. That record would never have existed.
1: Mm, yeah, exactly. I think that record would not have been written and produced and existed in the form in which it exists in if if it had been done in a place like Sound Sound City. The technology produces its own things that are not, I think, any better or worse than their counterparts in analog, but are equal.
0: I mean, um, and then and diff- then the right, and then then the then Dave Grohl, um, and I hate bashing people who I actually have a huge admiration for because I I do love Dave Grohl, but he gets into this whole thing, this whole <laughs> spiel about how everything that he does now is recorded in his basement or his
1: garage. Yeah, I think when he says recorded in his garage, this is, uh, I mean, obviously the second half of Sound City was recorded at his garage studio, um, but it's, <laughs> it's more of the back and forth um, documentary the Foo Fighters did and his Grammy acceptance speech where he's talking about, and also so South real. by Southwest,
0: his South by Southwest keynote speech gets on this
1: too. Does it? I I think I had to shut it off before that point. Yeah, um, but yeah, this like it's more real because he did it in his garage to tape. And I totally understand the emotional experience he's talking about, but I don't think the music is any more or less real for those but you,
0: but, but you understand the emotional experience because when you were 14, 15 years old, you actually recorded in a garage. Like many, <laughs> like, yeah. But, but you actually recorded in a garage. It's like his garage is his garage, his basement, his tennis courts, his pool. It's it's like we were talking that it's a, you know I there was a scene that Nate Mendel the bass player in the Foo Fighters and from Sunny Day Real Estate is literally sitting in a tent that they built on Dave Grohl's tennis courts, going over his base lines before he goes into the studio, which is Dave Grohl's garage, which is oddly furnished with leather couches. And Butch Vig is sitting there, and they fly Bob Bull down from from Sugar and Husker down from minneapolis this is not this is not a garage
1: no it's not (laughs) i mean when when somebody says this was recorded in my garage i think of the uninsulated garage that i was playing with playing at like when i was 14 in the middle of the winter freezing guitar players could barely get their fingers positioned properly on the strings because they couldn't feel their fingers that's what i remember this is a totally different experience and it's
0: and, and that, but that
1: it's it's only it's, technically a garage,
0: and, but it's legitimate and and and, it, and it's totally acceptable if you don't try to pose this as you're a broke sixteen year old, you know, and and, and, by, and by continually repeating the fact that it's a garage, we recorded this in my garage, you know, everybody who's going to big budget studios doesn't know the it's like stop. Just say that you recorded it. You recorded it to tape. You have the Neve console. Do whatever you want to do. Just stop trying to hammer it into my head that you recorded it in a garage because that's not that's not any garage I've ever seen in my life. And hopefully, I'll see one of those someday. But I'm not holding my breath because that's
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. No, I, I I totally agree with what you're saying. I, the one thing that uh, was very apparent through both Sound City and Back and Forth is that uh, Dave Grohl's got a really nice situation going on. It must be fucking nice to be Dave Grohl. Yeah, he's uh, he's got uh, several wonderful studios, assuming he still has the one in Virginia where they recorded a couple of Foo Fighters records. Oh, he's got to. I mean, he's from D.C. Yeah. I mean, he clearly still has that.
0: I mean, and the other thing that became apparent to me, and m- maybe it was just apparent in my mind, but that Nate Mendel seemed very uncomfortable with something. <laughs> They're not uncomfortable, but very like kind of... Just even still, after 15 years of being in the Foo Fighters, that he still just didn't believe where he was after being after coming from Sunny Day.
1: Well, that and especially, and, and this is neither here nor there, but uh, after the whole situation between Grohl and Will Goldsmith, while they were recording The Color and the Shape, where he basically fired Will Goldsmith, but didn't. He just redid everything he did and made it so Goldsmith had to quit. The fact that Mendel is playing actively with both bands, with the Foo Fighters and Sunny Day Real Estate, <laughs> has got to be a very weird tension because I don't think those two guys have ever made up. So, Why
0: would you make up if somebody redid all your parts and was like, "Yeah, you can still tour with us, but you're not going to play on the
1: record"? <laughs> yeah, it's, you're you're not as good as me. So. Right,
0: that, that that's essentially what it is. Like, you're not. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't. Nate Mendel has to feel very weird about the entire situation, but why would you ever quit that? I would never quit it. I don't care. I, if I was in the same, if I was Nate Mendel right now, I would not be quitting that that situation. Yeah, I would get All to play right. Everlong every single night on stage, and I'd smile my ass off every time I did it. Mm. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's a good situation.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's a wonderful situation, but I think that you know, when you really think about it, throughout the movies or throughout back and forth. Sound City, the South by Southwest keynote speech, and the Grammy Acceptance speech, you know, you kinda get this idea that Yeah, I got the idea that, you know, Dave Grohl and it's not you never lose where you come from. He's still an insanely talented songwriter. You know, I if I wrote Ever long, and that was the only song I ever wrote in my entire life, I think that I'd be a happy person. I'd be happy is beyond what I, what, I, what I could explain. But, you know, and you know, he's an insane, insanely talented musician. And, you know, he's a great personality. But there's some part of me that thinks that he just kind of forgot or hasn't stayed in touch with the fact that kids today can't, you know, achieve this idea of the pristine analog recording—that that that annoyed me—and it really must be nice to get on your red emergency phone and call Paul McCartney huh. and and say, "Come on over to my studio. We're yeah. gonna record with all these dudes. You know, Pat Smear will be here, and Chris Navaselic, and Butch is gonna be behind the board. It'll be chill. You know, we can go play tennis and swim in my pool afterwards. Yeah, it must be fucking nice." <laughs>
1: That's true. You know, it didn't even occur to me in Sound City. It, it They never made it obvious that the studio is in Grohl's house in his garage. But when you watch back and forth, it is obvious. So not only was he jamming with McCartney in his studio, he had McCartney at his house working on that.
0: Yeah. And, and McCartney probably crashed at his pad because he probably has 20 bedrooms. Yeah. I, well, I probably not. McCartney probably stayed at, you know. The Chateau marmont or something
1: like that, but <laughs> in France. Well that's in LA. Oh, oh, what's the um what's the actual <laughs> castle where uh I would love
0: it if, if McCartney flew to LA just to stay in France <laughs> That would be incredible to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was definitely I'm I'm getting pretty drained. It's getting pretty late. But no, what's Here. what's I'm thinking of the uh the actual place that they recorded that record. Um which uh, record? I'm thinking of the Elton John record. Um, look it up. Yeah, I'm going to look it up and uh, I'll get back to you next time, I guess, about this because uh, I don't know where this tangent's going. Maybe yeah. this is a good place to wrap it up. Well, I think the
0: theme of this whole podcast has to be it must be nice to be Dave Grohl. <laughs> I think that, you know, I think that having a certain level of admiration or even fetishization of, Analog recording is incredible. I I really do. I have endless amounts of love for it, and you know, I think that there are people out there. I think Dave Grohl is doing it right. I think that he just maybe lost touch with how you know music comes around today. And I think that there are other people out there who clearly, you know, love it the same way. I think that Jack White and Dan Auerbach from the Black Keys. I think that they they all have this sort of Admiration for it, but they haven't gone so public to kind of disparage digital music.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. I I think uh, this is a really just the whole thing is just kind of a weird case study in. uh I don't know. It's just it just I just walked away from the film. I really enjoyed the first half, and the second half really made me feel strange.
0: Right, and I and I walked away kind of just feeling weird because. I enjoyed it all, and I just have this massive dichotomy that I feel. I want to be that. <laughs> yeah. I want to be able to do that. I want to have Jeff Vaughton sitting behind the board in my basement, <laughs> recording on a board tape, while I record with Paul McCartney and Dave Grohl. Mm. But you know, but then at the same time, there's that part of me, the realist, that just kind of can look at this and say that this is unfair. To disparage everybody who can't achieve that in the immediate, or ever, and say that what you're doing is less valid than what I'm doing because it's done in a to a computer rather than to tape.
1: Well yeah. said, yeah. Well said. But those are good goals to have, and and someday uh, someday we'll get there. Oh, we will. But uh, cool, man. well, I'm out. I'm out of booze. Oh man, yeah, I tapped mine a while ago. It's probably pretty obvious from all of our rambles, but good conversation, good movies. I, if you haven't watched Sun City, check it out. I mean, it's interesting. I think the first half is awesome, and uh, you know, watch the second half with a critical eye. So, and
0: I think back and forth is also a good movie, especially if you have any interest in the Foo Fighters. The history of the band is actually very interesting, and the latter part of that movie is fascinating to see the garage studio that Dave Cross sets up.
1: Totally, yeah. Watching that really highlights uh, just um, this disparity between the words he's saying and the experience he's having.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Cool. All right, man. Well, uh, I, I would like to say goodnight to you, Keith, but when you're listening to this, it's morning, so... Uh, thank you. Future Keith is saying thank you. Have an enjoyable lunch, <laughs> and uh, and I'll talk to you soon, man. <laughs> Later, Jeff. Cool. Bye.